Hey, I'm Mike Bruce, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders by founders. This is the Founders Forward. Welcome everyone to episode two of the Founders Forward podcast. If you recall, this season's all about talking to early stage investors, hearing how their minds work, getting to their psyche so you can be more successful with fundraising. Uh, today, I'm, if you're an early stage founder who maybe has gone through an accelerator, uh, maybe raised some angel money, doing a pre-seed or seed raise, like, I think this episode is, is for you. Uh, I'm joined by Brett, Brett Broll. Uh, Brett is the managing partner of Bread and Butter Ventures. I believe on their second fund now and based in Minneapolis. Uh, he's also the managing, direct, managing director of Techstars uh, Farm to Fork Accelerator. And before that was a founder himself and, and saw three teams to exit. So gonna learn a lot today. Uh, Brett, first of all, welcome to the show and, and thanks for joining us. Thanks Mike, yeah, I appreciate it. And we actually are about to finish the close on our third fund. So um, oh, there we go. number three is almost done, but it's, uh, okay. it's great to be here. Congrats, what's the, what's the progression been from uh, fund one to two, and then any, I don't know if you can share fund three yet, uh, but like size and, and number of companies. Yeah, so we've had about the same number of portfolio companies in each one of our funds. So we did 22 portfolio companies in the first fund, um, about the same amount in fund two. In fund three, we expect to have between 25 and 30. So a few more in fund three uh, from a portfolio's perspective, but uh, we've actually just increased what our average check has been. So our average first check. So our average first check in fund one was $75,000. Um, fund two was 200,000 and we didn't have any capital for follow in first fund fund two. We did have capital. We do continue to have capital for follow into our existing portfolio. And then yeah. fund three, our average first check will be 500. And then again, we'll be reserving capital for follow into subsequent rounds. And so um, it's been interesting. Like the thesis has stayed the same, right? Pre-seed, seed stage companies. Um, and, but it's just the check has gotten a little bit bigger. Uh, and so we're able to do a little bit more and help founders out a bit more than uh, with, from a capital perspective now than we were from. Uh, from yeah. How, it primarily, we, we covered one of my questions, which is like name, rank, sue, and number type stuff for the fund. Uh, what, what types of companies, you know, early stage, is it primarily uh, in the Midwest or, or uh, outside? Like what, where are you primarily investing, I guess, in terms of geography? Yeah, we're geo-agnostic, so we'll invest okay. anywhere. We, uh, we're more vertical focused, so we have three primary practices. I lead our food tech practice, and so we do a lot of food tech investing. Um, and so we do, which basically to me, I call it full stack food. So from on-farm all the way to future of food retail. So uh, um, ag tech, manufacturing, logistics, supply chain, uh, retail technology for food, and it's all software tech-enabled hardware or biotech. And then we also do um, health tech, and my partner Mary leads our health tech practice. And then we okay. both, uh, both invest in enterprise SaaS. So that's kind of the, the general right. um, overview. Occasionally, you'll see a company that we invest in that doesn't fit any of those. And those tend to be more geo-local. We're in Minnesota. And so we will invest in Minnesota or Midwest companies that don't fall within our, our core thesis. So Mi Minnesota is the land of 10,000 lakes. I'm from the Midwest as well. But you're, you're leaning into bread and butter ventures. Like, is that also the name of, of Minnesota? How, how did the name come to be? Um, Mary named it actually. I is not the. Okay. Uh, I did not come up with the name. Originally, the original name of the fund was the Syndicate Fund, which was not a great name. Um, I came up with that one, and then we quickly rebranded. <laughs> um, and so, but Bread and Butter Ventures, it's a nod to a couple of different things. The first is 
Uh, it is one of the nicknames of Minnesota. It is it's a bread and, one of the one of the nicknames is the bread and butter state. In addition to the the, um, the land of ten thousand lakes, um, another is that we invest in what we believe are the bread and butter of the backbone of the the economy. And so, food tech, health tech specifically, are two of the backbones of of um, of really the world, but also definitely the U.S. economy. And so, we invest in bread and butter sectors. And so, that's kind of where it comes from. Plus. There's a zillion puns you can make off of it. And uh, <laughs> so that also makes it fun. Uh, I love it. Uh, so this morning I, I watched your uh, Fundraise Faster series, which is which was awesome, by the way. We'll make sure to link to it. There's uh, three parts so far. Uh, is, there gonna be more, I, I, is it a three-part series or going to be more? So that one's a three-part series. We do okay. have another, we probably have another 15 or 20 videos up that are small snips of like fundraising okay. tips. Um, so we have the three-part series and then, and then we do a lot of, I do a lot of videos that are like two minutes long that have like just one actionable thing founders can do. And a lot of those are focused on fundraising. Okay, yeah, it's, it's awesome content. We're going to link to it in the, in the blog here and follow up and you guys should all watch it. Uh, and we'll, we'll probably talk about some today. And so let's talk about process in, in fundraising for founders and let's, Presume. Let's just do a seed round. I think that's, that's probably most common for for audience, our audience. And um, you know, maybe one of the first things we always talk about to our audience and, and customers is, what questions should founders be asking themselves, you know, before they even raise venture dollars? Like, you know, maybe we talk about power law curves, early stage investing math. Like, how how does that change the expectations for you as a company when you're even before we even jump into a, talking about the fundraising? Like, should I raise venture dollars? Yeah, I mean, um, and, and so a little bit of context here too, Mike, is uh, with some of my startups, I actually bootstrapped my first company. I didn't raise any capital when I took it to exit. Um, and I've also raised capital, uh, venture capital. So I've actually done it both ways as a founder. Um, yeah, and not every company needs to raise capital. Uh, uh, one of the big questions you should ask yourself is what's your goal with this company? So that's the first mm -hmm. thing you should do, right? Uh, if your goal isn't to have a liquidation event at some point in the next 10 years, you probably should not raise capital. There's nothing wrong with building a $10 million business that spits off a million dollars in profits forever. And, you know, it's a great lifestyle business and you can own that forever, but that's not a venture backed company. That's not what a venture fund wants you to do. And so if that's what's in your mind, be honest with yourself and build that. And that's okay. Because what's going to happen is if you go raise venture capital for that type of a company, and that's your vision, is you're going to end up butting heads with your investors and it's going to get ugly and it's not going to end well. You, either you're going to get forced out as a CEO and those, uh, those investors are going to sell the company or you're going to have to kick, uh, kick your investors off your cap table, which is really hard to do or buy them out at some point in the future, which is just really difficult to do. So the first is really is what do you want to do with the company as a founder? And there's not a wrong answer. Like I feel like people think there's a lot of pressure to go raise capital. I mean, I'll take a $10 million business that spits off a million dollars all day long. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, that's totally cool. Oh, perfect. And and now, you know, talking about wanting to raise, uh, you're like, yep, big market, big opportunity. We got the right team. We're going to go raise venture dollars. Uh, can you talk a little bit of, because, you know, you're, you're managing director of tech stars for, for uh, at least at least five years. I saw you got, you see this every day. Yep. Um, I want to talk about like how much time you should allocate to raise uh, your first round of funding, call it the seed round, like institutional fund, because I think founders tend to, under index the amount of time it takes to, to put it all together you might think you might see things on on tech or on tech conference like oh yeah a couple of weeks but like what have you seen in practice of how long it takes to get a round done what, what should i budget for as, as a founder for all the companies that we work with and that i work with and i'm coaching i tell them assume it's going to take five months to raise capital 
And that's broken up into one month of preparation. And that's going to include all your doc prep. So putting your deck together, your financial projections together, uh, starting to get your data room organized, and then doing your research on the funds that you want to go out and pitch and, and talk to, which is another really important step. That takes about a month. And then assume three months to pitch. So you're going to be out pitching and talking to funds for three months. And then about a month to close uh, at a, in a seed round. That's pretty, pretty, pretty normal. You know, two to four weeks to close your round once you've gotten it fully committed. And so, so it takes up to five months. And why that's really important is you need to plan for that with your runway, right? If you have three months left of runway, you better go start fundraising now. If you have eight months left, you're going to be fundraising in a couple. And it's really important to start earlier than rather than later, because the more capital you have and the more runway you have as a founder, the more leverage you have. Because if you get a offer that you don't like, you can walk away from it. Whereas if you get to the end of your runway, you, sometimes you get forced to take whatever offers on the table. You, you mentioned financial projections. I want to talk about that for a second. So I think it's really important. Um, you know, you, you read, I think there's probably two kind of very divisive views here, where it's like one is they don't matter, right? Don't even care about them. The, they're not worth the paper they're written on, whatever, right? Because no one ever hits their financial projections. And then it's just an exercise that founders might feel like, hey, this, this investor is wasting time. Like they ask, they're asking me for five-year financial projections. I have no idea what we're going to do next month. And then I think you have the other side, which is um, they're incredibly useful because it, it allows you to see how the founder or CEOs think about scaling and building their business. And it, yes, I understood these are not going to be accurate, but it, it is a lens into how this founder thinks. And like, where do you sit on that continuum of it's a, a wasted exercise versus incredibly valuable? It's a wasted exercise if founders don't do them the right way. Um, and so what most founders, the way most founders put financials together is not useful to anybody. Uh, if you do them the right way, it can be differentiating for you as a founder when you're pitching an investor. And as an investor, it really can give me insights into how you're, and you said it exactly right, Mike. It's not because we think those numbers are going to be correct, but it gives me an insight into how you're thinking about your company. And so if you do them the right way, uh, and really from bottoms up, um, it really can show me how you're thinking. Uh, what are those, those drivers, those channels where you can put money into and you think you can drive growth? You know, are you thinking that you're gonna be a $10 million company and then sit on it? Or are you thinking like I'm going big here? And so it, it can help us align as an investor with the founder. If you do them you know, half-assed or it, where in a way that it doesn't matter, like then it just makes you look bad anyways and you waste your time. What's an example of like, you said most of them the wrong way. What's the right way? You mentioned bottoms up. Like, is there something, something you're looking for in particular that's like a positive sign of so, how a founder should think about it? Yeah. I mean, and you should, if you can link to this too, there's an amazing four-part blog and a video put up by Troy Hennikoff, who's a partner at Math Ventures around, and he, it's, it is an awesome free resource. And he talks about startup, um, how startups should build financials. And every founder that is at a seed stage should follow his path and his trajectory. And what it is, what most founders do is they start with a number. They say, we're going to have 10, 10 clients in month one. And then they say, we're going to grow 5% month over month. Yep. And so that's top down, right? You pick a random growth rate and that is useless. That doesn't help yep. anything. Um, what, what Troy says and what the right way to do it is what you say is, we're going to spend $1,000 a month in Google advertising and our convert, and that's gonna drive 1,000 clicks and 
every click we get, our conversion rate is going to be 2%. And so we're going to get 20 clients because we spent $1,000 on advertising. And so it's saying, if you do these things, if you hire a salesperson, that salesperson can make 10 calls a month and they're going to close one of them. And so it shows me as an investor, how you think about growing your business. And so are you going to grow it through direct sales? Are you going to grow it through digital advertising? Are you going to grow it through other man, other ways and means? And so that's why it's important. It's also really beneficial to a founder, not just the investor. It's actually good for a founder to do because it forces you to think through your business. It forces you to think through what are your paths to advertise, to market, to sell, um, and what it's going to take to scale. And so it forces you to think about it too. If you don't have good financials, how do you know how much money you need to raise? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's exactly right. Getting super tactical here for a second. Investor says, I want five years. Do you think it's acceptable to do like a month by month for the first couple of years and switch to quarterly or annually? Or do you like to see like the same period throughout the entire, like the same cadence for all five years of, of projections? I usually like to see like 12 months, month over month, and then five year, and, and it can be annualized after that. I'll look at, I'll look at 12, like the first 12 months pretty closely. Um, and maybe 18, honestly, like one thing, one way to think about it, some founders do that's really smart is they say they're raising enough capital for 18 months of runway. They do a month to month projection for that 18 months of runway. And then after that, they move to annual. And so they'll base like their projections um, on how much capital they're raising time for. So they can actually show an investor, hey, you're investing a million bucks. Here's what, how, what it's gonna look like over that 18 months that it's gonna give us. Super smart. I love that. Any other red flags outside of like the, the straight, um, you know, you take the Excel and you drag it over for the straight line growth of like 5% each month, like any other red flags you, you see that founders should avoid? I mean, like for me, one of the big, and this might seem counterintuitive actually, is if it's like really slow, flat, like slow growth over five years, it, it tends to disinterest me, right? I mean, we are mm -hmm. looking for founders that are thinking big. And while it might seem ridiculous, you know, I want to, it shows me also, how are you thinking about your company? So are you thinking you're going to go from zero dollars in revenue to 500,000 to a million to 1.5 million to 2 million? Like that's just not going to get me excited. Um, and part of your job is to get me excited as an investor. And then you have to back it up with your assumptions. So you can't just pull those out of your ass, but like, um, and, but then when I challenge you on it, you say, Hey, this is why this could happen. But if you don't, if you have like two flatline growth, we need to see, and you talked about this at the beginning, if, if I don't see the ability to have exponential growth, not flatline, so we need exponential growth, not, not straight line growth, right? Yeah. Um, and if I don't see that potential and you're not showing me that in your initial like financial projections, like, uh, you know, how do I get excited? One of the other things that I see uh, with, with founders we, we work with is uh, kind of the, the inverse of that, which is $20 million in revenue in year one. And I also think that can be a, a red flag, right? I mean, you'd be one of the fastest growing companies of all time when you press, uh, the founder's like, yeah, we're, we're, of course we're gonna do $20 million. And, and, and I think it's also helpful to think through that, right? Like, what is the reality? Like, are you, are you basing this in reality? Uh, it's good to think big, but like also realistic, like you're not gonna do, most companies are not yep. gonna do $20 million in, in year one. You can sink yourself that way too, right? You, again, you have to be able to back, um, back your financials up with the assumptions that you've made um, that are logical or based on reality. You know, they can be aggressive, but based on reality. Yeah, cool. Well, that was awesome. I, you know, financials is one thing I always, I'm, I'm more of a quantitative person and I think it's really important um, and probably overlooked. And, and so appreciate 
thoughts there, but kind of moving on to gap financials, we got some of the things we put together, we mentioned, let's talk about like, maybe even just skipping ahead just a touch about like I've raised a seed round. Should I always be fundraising or like never be fundraising? Like, should I be building relationship with potential investors after I've closed around, taking like warm intros, meeting new investors, or should I, as a CEO and founder, really just be focused now purely on execution after I've, I've closed a, a seed round? I mean, as CEO, post-seed, it, it changes after stages based on what stage you are. Mm-hmm. Um, the later the stage you get, the more the CEO is focused really on keeping capital in the, in the bank account and doing more and more investor relations. And so, you know, once you're past Series A, if you raise a big Series A, the CEO's only job is to hire great people, keep cash in the bank and set vision for the company. And that's it. And so you're no longer in an operational role at all. That doesn't usually happen until post-Series A. Um, but post-seed, you are going to have to dive back in and really be operational. Now, you are going to do yourself a disservice if you don't keep your existing investors um, uh, up to date and be communicative. My personal belief is that you need to send at least a month uh, after seed round monthly updates. So you should send monthly updates. They don't need to be a book. They can be a quick, you know, just here's what happened. Here's our KPIs. Here's how you can help us on a monthly basis. Um, once you get past post series A, I think it's, it's okay to move that to quarterly. But I actually think that from then on, you're going to be doing quarterly reporting, right? But you, after yeah. post series A, you move from uh, monthly to quarterly is tends to be my general rule of thumb. And that in and of itself does some of that work, right? It's an easy way to keep, because you're not, I also recommend that you don't just put your existing investors on that update. I also recommend that you put um, other investors that you had conversations with that they might've said, hey, you're a little too early for us. Keep us in the loop and come back for your next round. You're going to be putting all of those people on that update. And now magically, you're keeping those investors up to date with how you're doing and how you're progressing. If you have time, I do think that it is really beneficial to uh, try and keep a close relationship with a small number of next round investors. So if that, maybe that's about five you know, that you've met before, you really like them, they're your dream investors. When I talk about investors, like we, I break down target investors, tier one, tier two, tier three. And my tier mm-hmm. one investors are, my tier one investors are, they're great fits for your company from a, uh, a stage standpoint. They're great fits for your company from a thematic standpoint. Um, and they're your dream investor because you follow their blog and they, they, you love the way they write and what they, how they talk. They are a perfect cultural fit. So that's like your tier one. And that's usually five to 10. Your tier one investors, those are the ones you spend time on in between fundraising rounds. And you really try and cultivate and build those relationships. And if you don't have an existing relationship, they're the ones you try and proactively get introductions to in between fundraises. Oftentimes, it's much easier to get a meeting with an investor when you're not fundraising because there's no pressure on anybody, right? And so yeah. like, I do open office hours every Friday. Like Anybody in the world can sign up for my open office hours. And when a company comes into my open office hours and they immediately start pitching, it's like this weird reflex to be like, all right, I got to judge this person now, right? Um, versus when a company comes in and says, hey, we're not raising right now. Would love your advice or feedback on what we're doing though. All of a sudden now I go into help mode, right? Rather than judge mode. And so it, ch- it flips a switch in my mind of like the way I'm, I'm going to interact with that founder over that 20 minute open office hours. And founders come in all the time that, and, and I'll say, actually, I had to say, I had open office hours today. And there was one of the three meetings. I told the founders like, hey, keep me in the loop. What you're doing is super interesting. You're too early for us, but when you're ready, come back. And we'll see if he keeps me in the loop. And if he does, right, that's going to be a great signal that he's a good founder. 
Yeah. So for your top tier investors, um, it is very much worth keeping them in the loop and have trying to have regular check-ins with them. So um, maybe they even preempt your, your next round. You have to do less work in your next fundraise. That was a really long answer to what should have been a short question. That was a perfect answer. Um, and we actually have a template on the blog that Brett and the uh, Bread, Ventures, Bread and Butter Ventures team put together, by the way. So you can check it out. We'll make sure to link to that as well. Uh, but we have an awesome template that's put together. You can just use it with one click. So I'll send it to the person today you talk to. What is that and, annoying when people come into that meeting and, and start pitching? Or is that what it's meant for? Like, or, or do you say like, hey, it's no pitching. This is really just the help. No, if people want to pitch me, I'm cool with it. Like, honestly, it's, I, it's, I call it, at, you know, ask me anything, right? You can, okay. like, well, I go into those sessions. This is the founder or who, it's not, it's not even founders. Um, I mean, I've helped like high school seniors talk about college and it's, it's, it, and so it's really anything that people want to talk about. And so if they want to pitch me, then that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll send your pitch in that time. If you want to get my advice on something, if you want to shoot the shit about like barbecuing, I love barbecue and I'm happy to do that too. Um, <laughs> And, and on the, and Mike, on the template that you just mentioned, that template, we based it on one of our founders that is in our portfolio. He sends amazing updates. And so we based that template on his update. And I actually wrote a blog about that broke down his update. And that's, you know, that's kind of how we, um, we worked with you on it, right? And so it was based on a real founder in our portfolio's actual update that does a great job keeping his investors up to date. And we've invested in that founder's three rounds, all three of his rounds too. So he's had three Love rounds. It. We've invested in all of them. And if he wasn't good at communicating, we would not have done that. You mentioned tier one. That was like a great ad. We'll just play that on loop for, for visible. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you mentioned tier one, two, and three. Um, I, ha I had this question later on, but I think it's just good since it's top of mind to loop back to that. How should I think about, uh, so we have first month, that's my month of prep for list building deck, et cetera. I'm now in the three month period you mentioned of, pitching and, and getting meetings. Should I stagger my tier two first or tier three? Like how should I think about my time so that like when I really want to get in for that tier one investor, I have the pitch nailed and everything. Should I use it out of the gate? Should I wait? Like how do you think about building like the different sets of tier one, two, and three? Yeah. So tier one, hopefully you might've been doing a little bit of work prior to raising. And so you have some of those relationships. Um, and so I'm actually a proponent. If you have that, if you have a relationship established with a, one of your tier one uh, funds, a fund you really want to be on your cap table, I would actually go to them first and say, and basically even before you open your round and tell them, hey, we're going to go to the market with a round in a month or, and would love some of your advice, but also to see if you're interested in investing. And so if you have an existing relationship with that, you know, your dream investor, I would go mm -hmm. to them first and have a, that conversation. And it could be four or five of those. I would go to all of them first and have that similar, similar conversation with all of them and see if you can make it a quick fundraise. And um, while I say to assume it's going to take you five months, it can go faster, right? Especially in a market like we have today where there's a lot of liquidity, a lot of funds, it can go a little bit faster than that. It, I would prepare, it's like, wait, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Um, and same, same thing here. Um, yeah. Outside of that, I do think it, if, if you have never met that person, you do want to make sure your, your pitch is tight and ready to go. And so it might be, worthwhile moving to a tier two and, and having a bunch of a few of those conversations. And I do though, like I really am a huge proponent of stacking as many as you can in as short a period of time as you can. Mm -hmm. And so if uh, I actually say you're going to open a fundraise on Monday, send 50 emails or, you know, get, get introductions to all, you know, all 50 funds that you can get introductions to on that same Monday, and then try and stack them all within two weeks. Cause what you're doing is you're creating momentum 
and FOMO, because in those conversations, inevitably, uh, inevitably in that conversation, a investor is going to ask you, how's the fundraise going? And you can say, we just launched it on Monday. We got 50 introductions already. Mm-hmm. We got 40 meetings in the next two weeks. And all of a sudden, you just put a clock on that investor of when they're going to have to commit to the round. And so the more momentum you can build in your round and the more FOMO you can create in an investor's mind, the better and the quicker your round is going to go. Do you have any data around, I'm putting you on the spot here. Do you have any data around like conversion rates? So, and and, you know, I'm sure the answer is it depends, but let's just say I reach out to 50 investors. How many should I expect to, to have a meeting with? How many should maybe go through like diligence and then like what comes up at the end? Like how many term sheets should I get a term sheet if I'm talking to, to 50 investors? I mean, we, we coach our, our companies that you're going to have to get, you're going to have to reach out to probably about 60 funds and have about that many meetings to close around. Assume you're going to have to have 60 conversations to close around, right? And so where, you know, how that flows in the funnel. And that's a lot of conversations. And to, you know, like for bread and butter, for example, for us to invest in you, you're usually going to have at a minimum three meetings with us. Like that's, that's like fast, right? A three meeting, three meetings with us is, is a fast path. Um, more often it's going to be four, five, six meetings before we decide to invest or not. And so, so it's a multiple meeting um, and it depends on the fund and what their process looks like. And we do those meetings in a relative short period of time. Like our goal is from the first meeting of a founder to have a final decision within, you know, if, if we're to the quick no, we'll tell you no right away. But if it's a company that we say yes to within, you know, four weeks, we want to be able to three to four weeks, we want to be able to get through our process. And so, but it can take, you know, take that long for, for most funds, I would say, especially funds that can lead around. So I, but I don't have great stats on like. Yeah, um, that, that's super helpful. Uh, Just the frame, like the amount of conversations and momentum, I think, I think is, is super helpful. Yeah. And, and me as a founder prepping for those things, we, we talked about deck, like is a deck a hundred percent a must for you? I've seen people start to do like one pagers and memos and docs and links and video. Like, is it still like PDF is still like the bread and butter of, of, you know, getting around or getting a meeting or have you seen different mediums work, I guess, for how I'm delivering my pitch? Yeah. Uh, so it's, I mean, I have gotten, I'm a big proponent of, you should have like a email off deck, right. Which is a very, very short, like four ish slide deck. You could also do a one pager, invest a one page, like one pager on your company. But you're basically, um, you want to have a sending, something that you send off that you use to get those warm intros. So, so, if, so Mike, if I'm helping you make some, if I'm helping make some introductions for you to other investors, for example, the way I'm going to do is I'm saying, all right, Mike, send me a quick synopsis of what you want me to forward to another investor. And so I call it, it's affordable email. So I'm literally going to tell you, send me a affordable email, and then I can introduce you to Ryan Brocher at Matchstick Ventures. So what I expect to get from you I'm, is something that I can literally hit forward and type one sentence. Hey, I know Mike really well, super good guy. You're going to enjoy meeting him, right? And then I'm going to forward it to Ryan and see if Ryan wants the meeting. Dual opt-in intros, always do dual opt-in intros. Mm-hmm. And if he says yes, then I'll connect you. And so having that quick little one-pager or four-slide deck it's that the teaser deck that gets you the meeting. The mistake that founders make is they'll send like a 30 slide deck in as like their teaser. And what that does, why that's a mistake is it allows Ryan in this case to make an investment decision on your company without having ever met you. And mm-hmm. that's a mistake because at early stages we're investing in founders. 
But um, you want to give them just enough information in that four slides or that investment memo or whatever you're doing to get the meeting. What's your hook that will get you the meeting? That's what you want to do. So um, I'm okay with DocSend. Uh, I'm fine with DocSend as long as if I ask you for a PDF, you send me the PDF. Um, I usually ask for PDFs because we want to have like a moment in time that we can look at. And yeah, we're tracking you over months. And sometimes you're going to pitch me and I'm going to be like, you're too early, but keep me in the loop. When you come pitch me a year from now, I want to open your old PDF and see what you told me you were going to do and see how you did against it. So I, I do typically ask for PDFs. I don't mind if like my first view is DocSend though. And if that's like how I'm making the decision, that doesn't bother me. Uh, I will honestly say, and this is terrible to admit to, like sometimes I'll get those affordable emails and it's a DocSend and it's an email uh, and I have to enter my email address into the DocSend. And sometimes I won't do it and I won't ever look, especially, especially if it's a fund that's a little bit fringe for my thesis where it's like, okay, yeah. or, or it's so core in my thesis that I already know the space and I'm like, oh, not interested. And so I won't even look at the deck sometimes if it's DocSend uh, and I have to enter my email address, whereas I will always open a PDF. Yep. We're building a Docsend type feature, and so we're getting as much. We're trying to get as much feedback as we can. This is just a side tangent from investors of how they operate, but what founders like about Docsend, and seeing if there's like a marriage we could have in the middle. So, like, I literally sent your video um, to our, to Anna, our product designer, and I was like, "Hey, check this out. Um, I think this could be an interesting product feature where we could even expose the deck versioning over time to the investors. So, Brett has your context um, over those twelve months." Um, without having to like manage all the different PDFs. So I think there is like something there, which is interesting. Um, the, other, the, other, the other thing about DocSend is the vast majority of founders, when you ask them, why are they using DocSend? They'll be like, oh, so I can track like, you know, views and who's the most interested. And most of them don't do any of that track. They actually don't use the data. And so it's like, you're doing something and you don't even take advantage of it. I mean, the other benefit is that like, if you are scared of like a falling into a competitor's hands, you can, you know, you can retract yeah. it and pull it down. But I mean, honestly, my views, we can, that's a whole other story about my views around competition, but anyhow. I, I, I completely agree. I was like, we're going to build a, the lightest version of this possible where um, like time on slide doesn't even matter. Like that, that you're not going to optimize your pitch that much where that's going to get someone interested. Like, how are you actually using that data um, as a founder? So there's that, I, I tend to agree, especially with the competition piece too. And, and I also agree with like, is there a way we can build it where uh, if you put the link in the email, it actually attaches the PDF as well. So, um, yeah, uh, cool. Uh, just, you know, I, I want to make sure we have a wrap up here. I know we have a, a couple more minutes. Um, uh, just questions we ask all guests. Um, and then actually, actually, let me, let me go back and we'll wrap up with those. Um, cause I saw something interesting that you guys wrote this week, two days ago, uh, an update on your fund value and your commitments. Uh, you wrote it last year and, and you rewrote, uh, and just kind of an update. And I thought it was pretty interesting. You guys are being super open with the data, the types of founders you're backing. Uh, a couple of things that stood out to me were 2020, 13% of your portfolio was black. 33% uh, was a female, had a female founder. And there's some other interesting data we'll make sure to link to. And the numbers are almost, um, uh, some of them are almost double where 23% uh, of a black founder, 46% uh, uh, included a female founder. Like, what kind of initiatives did you guys do to change, that's uh, pretty drastic change in, in breakdown. So like, how did, how did you create that jump in, in your portfolio diversity and, and how are you gonna keep doing it going forward? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one thing we did, while it was a pretty drastic jump, our numbers a year ago were actually pretty good relative to the entire- yeah, yeah, They were great, yeah. 
And so we were already a really, we already had a really diverse um, portfolio relative to the venture community, which is not a high bar to start, right? Like venture community does not have a high bar. Um, and so we were better than what's not very good um, to start. And, but that helped us, right? Because that helped us out of the gate because uh, we were, are, were and are recognized as a very a fund that will give anybody a shot, right? We will, um, we don't care what you look like, where you're from, you know, what your gender is, what you believe in. If you're a good person, good founder, fit with us culturally and are working on something really cool, like we're going to give you the same shot that we give anybody else. And so, um, and our early statistics that we published actually helped us improve our statistics by publishing our diversity <laughs> statistics. It actually helped us improve our diversity statistics, right? Um, which seems kind of weird, but we also have, uh, we also have some very visible um, my, uh, minority founders. Um, so for example, Clarence Bethia from Upsy is a very mm -hmm. visible founder that's done really well. And he talks about us um, and that's been helpful too. And they all, and, and also we get, so we get a lot of referrals from our existing portfolio um, and portfolio base. But probably the biggest change um, that we had was uh, Mary Grove and I ended up partnering in the middle of fund two right about when we published those diversity statistics. So, so prior to that, it was just me investing and those, you can't mm -hmm. see me, I'm a white guy. Um, for everybody that's listening, I'm a white guy, right? And a year ago, Mary and I partnered and um, it is so true that having diverse investors um, drives more diverse portfolios. And it's not because Mary cares more about investing in diverse start founders than I do. It's not that at all. It's, it is because, um, Diverse founders seek Mary out. And, and we also, our, our third member of our team is Stephanie Rich, our head of platform. And so it's myself um, and two really, really smart, wonderful women. Um, and having a diverse team on a venture at a venture capital fund drives diversity in portfolio. And it's why it's so important that um, we have more venture funds and more uh, investors that are minorities. Um, you have to have that in order to really make up the gap in, um, in what portfolio makeups are going to look like and who's leading those startups. If you don't have diverse investors, it's never going to happen. Check out the data. It's, it's really compelling. It's an awesome blog post. We'll make sure to link to that too. Um, okay, last question, I guess, because um, uh, I don't think we can get to all of them. Uh, but what catches your eye in a cold email from a startup founder that doesn't know you? I'll go rapid fire. So this one is uh, customization. Right, yeah, customization. customize okay. to the investor you're reaching out to. Uh, number one thing founders can do to speed up their fundraising process. Uh, be prepared going into it. Uh, if you think a founder, if, if, I, if I'm a founder, I think I'm a good fit for bread and butter. I fit your thesis stage. Any tips for getting a, a increasing my odds of a meeting? I mean, get a warm intro if you can. Um, so that's probably the best, best ways. If you can get a warm intro, it's always better. You're always taken more seriously than if it's a cold email. Cool. Awesome. We talked about process as well. Um, minimum three meetings, likely like six, but you guys like to move quick once you get to know a founder. Um, and Brett, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thanks for sharing all this wisdom with us and uh, looking forward to, to staying in touch. Yeah, no problem, Mike. It was, uh, it was fun to be here.